that you had to be thankful for. If you're a If you'd be so kind to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5, we're going to continue in our study uh, looking at the King's Speech, the Sermon on the Mount. As we look at this, just remind you that from the the beginning, the very beginning of this uh, sermon that Jesus gave on the uh, Mount of Beatitudes, uh, Jesus focused on the internal uh, on what men are like on the inside rather than on the uh, external. The focus has been on righteousness and the fact that it's not um, uh, uh, a matter of outward things. Uh, righteousness truly begins inside, inside every single person. And when Jesus began to share this, no doubt much of this would have been very foreign to the ears that were hearing it and to sort of make sure people weren't getting confused about that, Jesus said in, in verse 17, we looked at this last uh, week, he says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus, we looked at this last week, actually fulfilled uh, the law and the prophets. We looked at how he uh, fulfilled, excuse me, the, the moral, the judicial, the sacrificial law of the Old uh, Testament. But not only that, We looked at how he said that those who would intentionally break the commands of Scripture and even teach others to do so would be considered least in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus certainly isn't preaching something against the law. He didn't come to destroy the law. What he actually came to do is to remind the people of what the law actually taught. You might find this difficult to understand, but the people actually didn't know. If you kind of think about the condition of Judaism in the time of Christ, it was very similar to the condition of the church in the early 16th century. See, the Bible was not written in the language of the people. That was in the language that only the popes and the priests uh, had. And so they would look at the scriptures and they would look at the liturgy and the, the prayers and much of the hymns and all of those things that they had were not in the language of the common, common man. And so the, the people that would come to church really had no way to judge whether what a priest said was actually biblical or not. In fact, they didn't even know what would be biblical because they didn't have Bibles. The Bible taught what the church said it taught. That's a scary place to be, isn't it? This is what I say it says, and you're just going to have to trust me. I hope that you don't go home just assuming that everything I had said is scriptural, <laughs> that you've checked it. One of the reasons why I put so much scripture up on the screen, so back so many points up with scripture, because we always back up scripture with not my opinion, but scripture. Scripture teaches scripture. And they did not have scripture to back up what was said in the early church. And the time of the Jews of Jesus' day, where it's a very similar situation. During the exile, So we looked at the book of Haggai. They were taken into exile, into Babylon. And even after that uh, period, much of the Jews lost their use of Hebrew. They didn't speak Hebrew. They came back, most of them speaking Aramaic. And so you had the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. You had that uh, floating around, but that had been translated 250 years earlier than, than this. And that would have been used by Jews in the Roman Empire, but largely in Palestine, where this, the area that we're looking at, um, not the case. They would not have understood that language. And if you wanted to have a Bible of your own, you're talking about a very bulky, expensive copy of Old Testament scrolls that 
modern people didn't have, right? The Jews just didn't have those things. And so in addition to that, what was primarily taught in the synagogues was not even necessarily that. It was the Talmud. And the Talmud was just, a, honestly, a codification, a, a collection of rabbinic traditions. So you had the Jewish people that had really had no clue what the Old Testament actually taught. The only way they had any idea it was to gauge it off of how the leaders of, uh, of the time were living and what they said they needed to do. Very similar to the church in the 16th century. And their leaders were Pharisees, and they just had to trust them. But see, the Pharisees and the scribes, their version of, of righteousness had been whittled down to really nothing more than external, superficial, hypocritical righteousness. And that's all the people had to go off of. They had nothing else to base it off of. So that isn't righteousness. And that's not the righteousness that God, that God requires. And it's certainly not the righteousness that he first communicated in Scripture. And so um, Jesus is trying to take them back to that. This is where he's going with this. It all has to start internally. If it doesn't exist in the heart, it doesn't exist at all, is what he's saying. And that's what Jesus has been teaching this whole time. It affirmed the divine standard for living that already was taught in the Old Testament. The people just didn't know it. They had no idea what it said. But very, very from the beginning, it's always been about the heart. Just take a look at a couple of passages of Scripture. You go back to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 39. Solomon prayed this at the completion of the first temple. He said, Then hear in heaven your dwelling place, and forgive, and act, and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. He had just said to God, God, we're going to go, and we're, at some point your people are going to sin. But when they do, when they turn in repentance to you, when they pray towards the direction of this temple, when they do that, would you hear them? Would you forgive them? And then what? Look at their heart. Because only you know their heart. Is there real repentance? Is there real sorrow? You do it, God, because you know the heart. David, his last words to his son Solomon, he wrote this in 1 Chronicles 28, 9. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intents of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. What was he telling him to do? Don't just go through the motions. You've got to serve him with a willing heart. The Lord that you serve knows your heart. You're not pulling one over on him. You're not fooling him. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 10, it says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. You see that? He'll, he'll know if the fruit of your doings is connected to the fruit of your heart. Is it real fruit or is it fake fruit? Is it fruit that's going to wither and die? And Proverbs 16.2 says, All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. That is a true commentary on man. Everything I do is fine. I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty good, but the Lord weighs the spirits. He tests the heart. Now, we left off last week with verse 20, and Jesus said a really bold and radical statement. He said, You people, your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And for them, that was the right, that was the goal. That's what they were aiming at. He says, no, it has to be bigger than that. Now, why do I bring up all that 
history because verses 21 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 48, have been misunderstood by many, many people as Jesus rewriting or reinterpreting the law. You'll notice in verse 21, he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old. But then in verse 22, but I say to you. And so many people say that Jesus came along and said, yeah, yeah, that was the old way, but this is the new way. I'm giving you a new law. But Jesus has just said that he hasn't come to destroy the law, but to what? Fulfill it. So what Jesus is doing here is not reinterpreting it at all. You have to understand that. Some of the confusion comes from the, you have heard that it was said to those of old. It can be translated two ways. That way, the New King James way, to those of old. But also the King James, if anyone's holding a King James Bible, it probably says you have heard that it was said of them of old. It can be translated either way. So is it the, the words that were given to those of old? Or it is the words that are of those uh, that of, of old? I don't think that's the major issue at all. Because Jesus is not referring to the law and the prophets here. When is he referring to the law and prophets? When he says, I'm referring to the law and prophets. Like he does in verse 17. I, don't, I know I'm losing you, but look. Verse 17, he says, I haven't come to destroy the law and prophets. I've come to fulfill. Then he goes down here. Now you have heard it said. You see? People have told you. This is what you've been hearing. Why have they been hearing this? That's the only way they could learn. You, you following? They couldn't read it. They didn't understand it. But this is what you've been hearing all along, right? This is the law. This is the law. This is what we've got to do. This is how this is the way to righteousness. This is the way to perfection. He says, this is slightly askew. <laughs> this is wrong. I'm trying to show you the real heart of the message here. So he's not changing anything. He's not changing anything at all. If he were, he would say, you've heard that it was said in the law and the prophets this. He doesn't say that. He says, you've heard it said this way. So this starts really the, the, the beginning of the end of this whole thing. He's going to repeatedly say this phrase, you've heard, you've heard, you've heard, which is titled, why I've titled this the you have heard section, part one, because we're going to have three of these, okay? Part one. So let's look at the passage. We're just going to look at verses 21 to 30 today to see what areas he wants to sort of um, uh, correct in terms of their understanding, but not correct in terms of what God originally meant. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge will hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body 
to be cast into hell. Let's pray. God, we just pray right now, Lord, that you just bless us as we enter this time of study of your word, Lord. I pray that your spirit would illuminate truth. It may be a bit of a confusing passage, it seems like, going into this, Lord. I I pray that you just show uh, us, Lord, clearly what is meant here. Lord, what you are trying to do, direct our thoughts to our hearts and and what really was the original intent of the law. Lord, we just pray that you bless our time and, Lord, just give us the inspiration we need uh, to understand all that's before us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, just breaking this down pretty easy. We're just looking at two things, and the first is murder. Basically, what is murder? What is murder? Now, we all might right away be like, well, this is murder. This is, you know, this is what murder is. But, but Jesus is really asking that question here. What is murder? You have said what murder is, but let me just tell you all that murder is, is what he's saying. You have heard what murder is. Now, when he says this in verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. He is, um, he, he is on one hand referring to the, the actual Ten Commandments, okay? Back in Exodus chapter 20, the command was, you shall not murder. That, that is it. That is the idea there. And the question does come up, what does that mean? Is it, does, is it, is it you shall not kill or is it you shall not murder? And I'm telling you, it's you shall not murder. Because we have many scriptural passages that tell us what kind of, 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 of killing, say it that way, is allowed. God does command it in cases. One area is capital punishment. It's very clear in scripture. He says, for an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. All right, we'll look at that when we get to it. Another area is, is just warfare. Now, I don't know that much of the warfare we see today is very just, but right? But when God was commanding his, his people to go and conquer uh, the pagan nations in the promised land, that was just what he wanted them to do. It also uh, excludes accidental homicide. It's one of the reasons when you're reading the Old Testament, those cities of refuge were set up. Because if you accidentally killed someone, well, then the avenger of blood, right, the, the relative who wanted to find revenge would come and kill you. And then there'd just be this nonstop cycle, right? But you were allowed to flee to one of the cities of refuge. And the way God had established those cities of refuge is that they were within a day's travel of anywhere that you could have done that. And you were to go to that city of refuge, and there you could be protected from the avenger of blood, but you had to stay there, okay? If you come out of it, then it's on your own head. But you had a place to stay because, because God understood that that was an accident. And also in, in, in the area of self-defense, self-defense was allowed as well to take, to take a life. But this is what Jesus is teaching here. We're not going to get so much into those areas because that's not the main point. Jesus is teaching three things about murder here. And this is where I want to direct us. First of all, it affects our view of ourselves. It affects our view of ourselves. We've got to look at what he's saying here. He says, whoever um, commits murder, and this is what you've been told, will be in danger of the judgment. Now, when he uses that word judgment, the, the word there is krisis. It's a decision. You'll be in danger of the decision. A decision that is passed down by a council of some kind, uh, a, a condemnation, a, a punishment. You'll be in danger of that. What Jesus is referring to here is the human court, the court that the Jews had set up in those times. The traditional penalty, okay, for murder um, would have been something, or, or the, 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 the actual penalty that God intended for murder was the death penalty. But traditionally, what passed down through the, the years was that the, a judgment would be rendered in a civil court. 
that you would go to court, your case would be heard, and then they would sort of decide what, uh, what, you know, what kind of punishment would fit that, that crime. Now, that falls far short of the biblical standard. God didn't confuse it. Don't we confuse the courts today? Like, it's pretty crazy, right? Well, I didn't quite say it this way, and we can twist this and we twist that, and it's just nuts, right? But God simply, he made it very, very uh, simple. Um, the death penalty was given in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. He said, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. And in terms of premeditated murder, God demands the death penalty. But they had left it to the court in their time. And they had given it to the court to decide what should take place. But that went far short of what God said should take place. It also doesn't take into to, 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 um, account God's holy character at all. It doesn't have anything to do with God, that he, he considered disobeying his laws, right? Desecrating his image, all those things. That, that was worthy of the death penalty. And also doesn't address the heart at all. The heart wasn't considered. It just got down to a legal battle over what actually happened and who said what. And there's three degrees of seriousness that Jesus describes here about murder. And what he's going to do is try to clarify what happens, okay? He, they've, they've basically whittled it down to an act, and then we'll give it to the court. We'll kind of see what they determine. He says this in verse 22, but I say to you. Now, remember, he's not contradicting the law. He's contradicting rabbinic tradition here, right? They felt secure in their self-righteousness because they'd never actually killed anyone, right? That's, what, that's the idea. Well, I never actually killed anyone, so I, I'm pretty... I'm pretty good. Don't we do that today, right? We basically, that's the, the place we go. We go to murder. Well, I'm a good person. Why? Well, I never killed anyone. It's the first place you go. Or you, I've never stolen. But, you know, but I've, I've never killed anybody. I'm pretty good. But Jesus is trying to shatter this false thinking, all right? Notice what he says here. He says something about the act of murder and the motive behind it. Look, he says, I say to you, whoever's angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Anger. He says anger is the basic motive behind murder. Now listen, prisons are full of convicted people who have actually committed the act of murder. But there are many who are murderers in their heart. This is what he's trying to say. It's anger. Let me take you way back to show you an illustration of this in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4 to the very first murder. Genesis chapter 4. You have Cain... And you have his brother Abel. It says in verse four, uh, sorry, verse three of chapter four. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. That's all it says right there. Cain got really angry. God enters the scene. So the Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. So the Lord noticed something. He says, you're angry. Now, if you're angry, he says, sin is lying at the door. You're this close. You've got to what? He says, you've got to master it. You've got to control it. Listen, 
Anger itself, people can get angry. But it's where anger takes you. And so what he's talking about here is that anger is at the root of a heart that hates and wants to kill. You ever been angry enough where you go, like, oh, I just want to kill? You know, there might be people even now. Maybe, maybe you're feeling that way against leaders or certain politicians, right? Maybe you're, I just wish someone would take that person out. We really have to check our hearts against these things, don't we? 1 John 3.15 says, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That's pretty severe. You murder, you have no eternal life. Is that what he's saying? Is that because murder is the unforgivable sin? No, because murder comes from the heart. That's what he's talking about. And we need transformed hearts. Listen, there's a thing about anger. Anger is always a moral issue. You just have to understand that, all right? Just, just take your driving on the road and someone cuts you off, what, what, and you get angry. Someone has entered my realm. How dare they? This is my space, my space for Kevin. And I have declared them guilty. Thou shalt, you know, and we just, we do that. We have created some sort of moral issue that doesn't exist. And the minute we start getting angry, we really have to, we have to question our hearts. Now, the question is, can Christians, can Christians um, be angry but not sin? Can we do that? Well, Paul says in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. So apparently you can. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. He's quoting Psalm 4, 4 there. Listen, Christians can be angry. I know I kind of made light earlier. We, we can and we should have righteous anger for certain things. We can and we should have righteous anger over ungodly things that are happening in our country and in our communities and in our schools. We should be angry about the compromise of the church. We should be angry about the ungodly and satanic philosophies that are targeting our children. It makes me very angry, and we should be angry about those things. But we're to be angry and not sin. This is a righteous anger. It is akin to God's anger, but his anger is always righteous. Mine can easily shift into sinful flesh. We've got to be very careful. But, 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 but we're told that God is angry with the wicked every day. Every day. You might have heard that phrase, well, he's, he's angry at the, the sin, but not so much the sinner. No, he's angry with the wicked every day, Scripture says. But we can have righteous anger. We can, but it's, it's not the kind of anger that Jesus is addressing here. So I'm, not, I'm just clarifying that. He's talking about selfish anger. Nobody says, if you have anger, right, you've been angered without a cause. Do you see that? No real reason to be angry other than your moral right law has been violated that you've written somewhere, right? That is it. Anger is always a moral issue. This is what he's talking about. This is the kind of anger that holds a grudge. This is the kind of anger that when you read about Hebrews, takes a root of bitterness in your heart. Listen, anger takes that kind of root. You can do almost anything, couldn't you? You can be very careful here. And this is what he's talking about. If you have that kind of anger, he says, look at the, uh, you're, you're in danger of the, the judgment. You'll be in danger of going to that, that court, okay? Without a cause, you'll be danger of the judgment. So earlier he says, you've heard it said that if someone commits murder, they're going to go to the judgment. I'll tell you, if you just get angry at someone, you have no really reason to be angry, you should go to that judgment. You should go to court. Well, I'll tell you, this room would be empty. Hey, most of us would be in some court somewhere facing a judge. What, what do you hear? I, I got angry at somebody. This is what he's saying. He's trying to take it deeper. Look at verse 22, second half. 
And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Now, Raka here is just a, it's a slanderous term. It's a term of reproach. Empty-headed is the closest thing that our vernacular has. Um, but this is slanger, slander. Sorry, This is where your anger now has verbal, been verbalized. So you have the one step here, just getting angry in your heart. you got to be careful. Like he told Cain, be, you're, you're angry. Sin is crouching at your door. Now you give way to slander where you're calling people uh, names. You're, you're using terms of reproach. That's a serious offense. And he says, says if it, you begin to give expression to that kind of uh, anger, you're going to be in danger, he says, of the council. The word council there is the Sanhedrin. That's the word, Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin were the Council of Seventy, and they were the ones that tried the most serious offenses, and they were the ones that could give the most serious penalties. They were the ones that could approve death by stoning. I think I'd rather take a lethal injection, stoning. But they, they were the ones that really could sentence you to death. He says, if you take it to the next step, to now where you're verbalizing your anger, then you should be standing before the Sanhedrin, the Council of the Seventy. And then he goes one step further, verse 22. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. This is even a more serious offense. This is the person who is taken to the step of condemnation. That person is a fool and he deserves to die. You've taken it to that place. You're, you're, you're condemning the person's a character. And fool then was a very serious term to use. You're t- saying that person is obstinate and godless. And he deserves to die. And certainly fool was used in Scripture for the person who doesn't know God, right? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now listen, those that don't know God, as Christians, it is our obligation to warn those very clearly, right, about, about rejecting God's truth. We don't go up to there. So first of all, you're being a fool. That's not probably the way to do it, Okay. But we do warn them about that. We don't, you know, we, but we can't condemn their character on it. God is the one that has to judge hearts. But, but our, our, our goal as Christians is to share the life-changing message of the risen Jesus Christ, okay? He's the one that changes hearts. I can't do it. But I've, I've got to kind of hold up that mirror a bit sometimes, right? You've got you've to show God's truth. And so they can see you're not basically the good person you thought you were, Right? So what are you going to do about that? We do that, but we don't go up there and call them fool and then condemn their, their character. And this is, listen, you've got to take it back into that time. This is the righteousness of the Pharisees, okay? None of you are as good as me, and so you're all condemned to hell is the idea. Now, don't people sometimes think of Christians that way? Oh, you're just the righteous one, self-righteous. You've heard that of you probably, maybe? Maybe, it's, maybe sometimes we bring that on ourselves. Maybe we look a little bit down our noses too much at people, like we're really better. Is anyone here really better? I wasn't better. I'm still not better. (laughs) But Christ died for me, and he changed my heart. And so now I I strive to live for him because I love him, and I want to serve him. But it has nothing to do with my righteousness. I'm not better. Now listen, sometimes you're going to bring that on just because that's people's perception. That's their defense mechanism. So I'm not saying that always comes on because we deserve it. Sometimes that's just what people say, huh? Oh, you're one of those self-righteous people. And they have not understood the righteousness of Christ that comes to us freely as a gift. But the Pharisees were saying, you all are are worse than me, all right? You are deserving of of hell, fire. And Jesus would say, well, listen, if you think that way, you're deserving of hell, fire. The word that he uses, Gehenna, 
that is derived from the Hinnom Valley, which is down the slope off the, the eastern side there of Jerusalem. And down there, they would just burn the rubbish perpetually. It was just constantly on fire. And Jesus, in Scripture, 11 times, he uses that as a reference to hell. Hell's going to be like this eternally burning uh, you know, pit, rubbish pit. And so this is what he's saying. If you have that, you've gone to the place where you are now condemning every other person because your righteousness is so good. He's like, you're, you're deserving of hell. Now, this is pretty scathing stuff that he's coming out with. But he has to try to reveal this to them. So it affects our view of ourselves. When we really understand murder, we should be taking a look at ourselves and going, hang on, I've been angry before. In fact, I've, I've really been angry against a person. In fact, I've really hated somebody in my heart. And I would say, God would say that's tantamount to murder because you're just, you're just a step away from doing it. It's, a, it's an issue of the heart. Secondly, it affects our worship of God. Look at verse 23. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, you have to kind of understand the gift giving there, what the Jews were, were doing. They would bring, so they understood that they would, would, through sin, be separated from a relationship with God, and that had to be rectified. And so to do that, they would bring a sacrifice. They wouldn't bring it all, all the way to the altar, like it says here. They would have to bring it to the priest because the common person was allowed near the altar. They would give their gift to the priest. But before they did this animal, they would take this animal and they would sort of lay their hands on it or their head. And it, this was symbolic of transferring their sin to the sin of the animal. You see that? And then the animal was taken in and sacrificed in their place. And they did all of that to, to make themselves right with God, to repair that relationship. All right? But the problem with this whole thing was that with the rabbinical traditions, it didn't really teach that unseen sin was sin. Do you understand? It's just the outside things. And so they weren't going there um, to, to cleanse heart issues just external things. And so here he says to have hatred in your heart against someone else would not be uh, you know, seen as something that disrupts our worship and, or creates a, a breach between you and God. But it does. Jesus here says that's exactly what, what happens. It does affect our, our worship. And so listen, if you come to worship God, and we don't bring sacrifices here of, in terms of goats, but we just gave a sacrifice of thanksgiving to him. Or if we sat there doing that to him and all the while hating the person you're sitting next to, he says, I'd rather you just leave your gift there and leave and go make it right with them first because I don't even care. I don't even care about your sacrifice. Listen, what he says, Isaiah says some very hard words to the Jews because they were doing the same thing perpetually through the sacrifices. I'm making myself right with God. I'm making myself right with God. And all the while, their hearts weren't in it. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11, and then 16 to 17. He says this, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. You see, none of those things were they doing. None of those things did they care about. It was just, uh, bring my sacrifice, I'm good with God. And I'll just go on living the way I'm living. And, you know, a lot of people do that today. I, I came to church on Easter, so I'm good with God, and I'm good for a year, and I'll come back a year later, all right? And I'll make it right with God. Listen, God says, I've had enough of your sacrifices. 
I've had enough of your burnt offerings. I don't really care about any of that. That's not a sacrifice for me. He says, just live rightly for me. And how do we do that? Well, we need a changed heart. It, It starts there. Enough of the sacrifices. The psalmist writes in Psalm 66, verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Lord, we're going to hear. You can pray and pray and pray, but if you're just you know, praying for blessing or praying for this, all the while having a sinful heart, the Lord's not going to listen to your prayer. Listen, before you try and do that, you need to restore your, to, to restore your relationship with God. You've got to restore your relationship with your brother. Now, it's not talking about biological brother, is it? Your brother or sister you know, in Christ. Remember, blessed are the peacemakers. We looked at that week one. That's to be our heart. We're supposed to be peacemakers. So here's some common questions that come up anytime we looked at, I look at this kind of a passage. What if, if someone is in the same church fellowship, right? Um, what, what should I do? Well, that you should especially listen to his words here, especially. You're not really worshiping if you're both sitting there with hatred against one another, are you? Now, I know it does say here, right, um, that if you remember your brother has something against you, so it's sort of someone else has something against you, you still want to make it right. If you have something against them or they have something against you, don't you want that relationship restored? Yes, of course you do. He says, so listen, it's better that you take care of that situation first so that you can restore relationship with God because you're not really having a relationship with him because that hasn't been fixed. Does that make sense? In fact, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, it describes how we are to live. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, this is a church, okay? Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Listen, it doesn't matter. And you can sit there all day long and say, well, they did this and they did this. It doesn't matter. God says, just fix it. Forgive them. Because that is the new, that is the new attitude of the believer. What does it come from? Christ forgave you so much. Isn't it crazy that we just won't forgive people and then we forget, like, wait, God forgave me everything and continues. You said that, didn't you? He continues to forgive me. And yet I'll be so stubborn and hard-hearted, I won't forgive somebody else. Listen, I understand people are difficult, right? You're all so difficult. Uh, no. <laughs> but you know what? Church, church is messy sometimes because you're dealing with sinful fallen people. And, and you have to recognize, listen, it's going to take some work sometimes. i got to put some work here. And it's the work of the heart. And I have to sometimes go, like, help my heart, Lord, to be right. Because maybe it's not. I want to forgive this person. I want to be right-hearted here. Why? Why ultimately do you want to do that? Because I want to have a right relationship with God. Do you see that? It hinders your relationship with God. Another question comes up, what if it's someone else? What if it's not in the church? Okay, a family member, a friend, a a co-worker. Let me just take you a little further. If you're in Matthew 5, just look at Matthew 6. Look at verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive men their trespass, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You see that? We're just to have a spirit of forgiveness period, again, uh, for anybody. And when should you do this? You should do this right away. Jesus said you should just leave your gift at the altar. You've come that far, you just turn around and go right back. And listen, sometimes I've had to tell you, sometimes it might require you not coming to church. A pastor has actually told someone not to come to church if their heart isn't right with someone else. 
I say, listen, it will do no good sitting here and trying to worship God when your heart is seething against someone else. You've got to go and make that right first. Well, how long will that take? As long as it takes you to forgive. Now, I know there's an exception. What if they won't forgive you, right? That's the question. What if they won't reconcile? Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men, right? The truth is, we can't control the hearts of others, right? If I've done everything I've, I, I could, honestly done everything I could, if I've done every, made every effort to repair that relationship, but they just won't do it, then he says, do, do it as, as much as is possible, live peaceably. But sometimes it's just not possible. Sometimes those people just won't budge, right? So they need a little push. <laughs> and that's usually where the church comes in. You go through the Matthew 18 process and all that, right? That's why that comes in. That's why that's there. Because honestly, when two go together, hey, listen, there's an offense. It should be repaired in step one when you go through the Matthew 18 process. But sometimes, listen, hearts are stubborn. My heart can be stubborn. And so you have to go a little further. Leadership gets involved, and, not, and that's why that all is there, because God understands the human heart. But as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all. But his point here, an angry heart affects our view of ourselves and our, then our worship of God, doesn't it? The third point, it also affects our relations with others. Look at verses 25 to 26. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Now, this might be hard to understand, but really Jesus is using an illustration that's common in those days regarding the uh, imprisonment of those with unpaid debts. This is the practice there. So, in the previous example, Jesus referred to both parties, didn't he? But here is primarily the offending or the guilty party. Roman law in those times allowed that the plaintiff could bring the accused. So the accuser and the accused could bring the, bring the accused with him to face the judge. And what he's saying here is, listen, before you reach the court, you've got an opportunity while the accusers bring you to make it right, right? Before it gets there, he says, don't wait to get to the court. He says, settle the matter then. It's a matter of urgency is what he's saying, because if you wait for it to reach the court, it will be too late, and you'll be imprisoned, and you'll stay there until you've paid the last penny. So what he's teaching is unmistakable. We're to make every, every effort we can with no delay to make our relationship right with our brother before we can be right with God. And if we don't, we're going to face the sentence of the divine judge here. And, and you know, these were common and acceptable attitudes for the Jews to just have animosity with one another and then going and bringing their sacrifice to the altar thinking, well, I'm good. I'm good with God and I'll, I'll be back next year. And he's saying, you, you got it all wrong. You can't be living this way with hatred in your heart. You, you, you are not living up to the righteousness, righteous standard of God. You're looking at these self-righteous Pharisees. Murder, his whole point here, is far more than just a physical act. And that's what they had reduced it to. Now, look at the second part. What is adultery? What is adultery? And this is verses 27 to 30. I'll try to go through these. Uh, look quick here. Look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Uh, so here's the, the deed. What is adultery? Well, again, he's going back to the law in Exodus 20, and it just simply says the same thing. You shall not commit uh, adultery. Adultery is sexual intercourse between a man and a woman, where one or both of them are married to someone else. That's, that's simply what that is, okay? 
And that was in the Old Testament law, punishable by death. Leviticus 20, verse 10 is a good example. The man who commits adultery with, his, with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now, you might be looking at that and saying, the death penalty? Really? Why? Why would that be such a, a severe... Because we look at our world today... I mean, adultery is sort of highlighted as an as a almost exciting, you know, thing in movies and television, isn't it? There's adulterous affairs all over the place. But Hebrews 13.4 says this, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Why is marriage to be honorable among all? Why does he say that? Because marriage is a union created by God. You have to understand that. Marriage is just not because two people said, hey, let's go do something weird with this little ceremony. And it's something that God established. In Matthew, you're in Matthew, go all the way to 19. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus teaches on marriage and divorce. We won't be talking about it today, but I just want to show you what he says here. They came to him and said, "Uh, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife just for any reason? That literally was the question. Like, could I just ditch my wife for whatever? And they were doing that in those days. You burnt the food, you're out. They were doing that. And so this is Jesus' answer, 19 verse 4. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? He's quoting Genesis here. And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together let not man separate. You've heard that little phrase there over and over again, haven't you? Even in movies, even in secular movies, you got the priest up there, what God has joined together, let man not separate. They have no idea what they're saying. <laughs> what, they're, what they should understand is this is a permanent union. Man cannot separate it. God has established it. And God will judge those that defile or separate that union. Why? Because marriage is sacred. There's no other union like it, which is why even in the parenting thing, we, I keep going back to that because it just applies so well. We talk about uh, the, the, uh, the focus that needs to go back on the marriage because the relationship with your child in terms of earthly relationships is temporary, but that is permanent. Does that make sense? It's established a two as one. Your child is going to go make a new relationship somewhere else with a new family, right? They're going to make a family of their own. And so this is what he's saying. There's no relationship like it on, on, on earth. It's a sacred thing. And this is why for believers, particularly, we all have to flee any form of sexual sin. 1 Corinthians 6, 18, you might remember we taught on this last year. It says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. You see, there's something about the sin of a sexual sin that is unique and different than all other sins because it's against your own body. Why is this such a big deal? Why is this important? Because the verses that lead up to that, here they are. Verses 15 to 17. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? This is graphic, but he's trying to get a point. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. 
You see, as believers, married or single, we are one spirit with Christ. And we have to protect that union from any kind of defilement. And adultery or any kind of sexual sin defiles that union with Christ. Does that make sense? That's why it's a serious sin. You sin against your own body. You sin against the union you have with Christ. So the deed here that he's talking about is, in fact, adultery. Absolutely. But he doesn't begin really with the deed. Jesus begins with the desire. Look at this in verse 28. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Wow. Looking at a woman lustfully does not cause a man to commit adultery in his thoughts. Did you see that? Did he say you've already committed adultery in your thoughts? No. You've already committed adultery where? In your heart. In his heart. It's not lustful looking that causes the sin in the heart. It's the sin in the heart that causes lustful looking. That's what he's saying. It's a sin that begins there. And you've often heard this phrase, oh, I can look, but I, I just can't touch. Many of you know I worked in the secular world for many years. I worked as a grip in the movie industry and whatnot. And, um, and a lot of times the guys would, on their break, go to a local strip club. That's what, that's what they did. Um, I'd sit in my car and eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. That's what I did. Well, one of them claimed to be a Christian. And I remember, I remember a discussion. He came up to my window. I was sitting there, and he, he said, why don't you come with us? I said, I'm not going there. I'm married. I can't, I'm not going to do that to my wife. He goes, I'm married too. Listen, we can look, but we can't touch. That's what he said to me. I'm like, wow, did you write that? That's amazing. Like, you know, it's like, we hear these things, and we repeat them like that. That's gospel. Oh, yeah, I can look, but I can't touch. No, you can't do that. Okay? Because if you look, it's coming from where? You're, the lustful desires in your heart. That's why I don't look. There's adulterous thoughts in that man's heart, and that's why he wanted to go lustfully look at women. And I said, I don't want to foster any kind of sinful, adulterous thoughts. Can we be guilty of adulterous thoughts? Can we be guilty of those things? Those things creeping in? Absolutely. Those things can pop in your head. But you don't want to foster them, right? You want to take every thought, what? Captive. Absolutely. Let me show you what James says about this. James chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. That's how that happens. You are um, tempted when you are drawn away by your own desires. Where are those desires? In your heart. That's when you're tempted. You look at the case of David and Bathsheba, right? When he went to the rooftop, did he sin when he uh, saw the, the woman bathing naked out on the rooftop? No, he didn't know she was there. She was just there. When did he sin? When he longingly lusted for her. That's when he sinned. And when you do that, it says, then Desire has conceived. Now I've hatched a plan on how I'm going to sin. And he did. I'm going to have her brought over here. And he had her brought over. And that gave birth to what? Sin. That's exactly what James says. And literally, in his case, gave birth, right? A child was born, ultimately killed because of his sin. It's our own desires that entice us. The sinful heart tendencies tempting us. It's our own desires conceiving it's our heart tendencies that, that have now given way to the thought. How am I going to do this? I'll hatch a plan here. And it's our own desires that give way to sin. 
the plan is then put into action. And if we stay on that path, James says it leads to death. Let me just read you a a section from Job. You don't have to turn there, but it's Job 31. But Job understood this process. In Job 31, he said this, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? For what is the allotment of God from above and the inheritance of the Almighty from on high? If not destruction for the wicked and disaster for the workers of iniquity, does he not see my ways and count all my steps? And they skip up to verse uh, 9. He says, if my heart has been enticed by a woman or if I've lurked at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down over her for that would be wickedness. Yes, it would be iniquity deserving of judgment. Yet today, today, no, you can look. Oh, just go ahead and look. He says, if I've even thought about that, I know I'm deserving of judgment. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. Exactly what he's saying. If you've already looked lustfully at a woman, he says, you've committed adultery in the heart. Now, I know here, Jesus is specifically mentioning the lust of a man, right? Because he's lustfully looking at a woman. And, 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 and probably that's the more common thing. Uh, for Not that women don't lust for men, but it's, it's a more common thing for men. That's why pornography is more of a common problem for men, although it's on the rise for women as well. But what about women? I read something recently, and I thought, this is pretty, pretty, pretty good. Arthur Pink wrote this, but it was an exposition on the Sermon on the Mount. He was talking about this. It says this, If lustful looking is so previous a sin, then those who dress and expose themselves with the desire to be looked at and lusted after are not less, but perhaps more guilty. In this matter, it is not only too often the case that men sin, but women tempt them to do so. How great then must be the guilt of the great majority of modern misses who deliberately seek to arouse the sexual passions of young men. And how much greater still is the guilt of most of their mothers for allowing them to become lascivious temptresses. Now that's pretty severe, right? But he's kind of right on. If we really took this kind of stuff seriously, we used to talk to, we ran a youth group, okay? We would talk to young, young ladies all the time. And we'd say, you got to remember, like, that's your brother in Christ sitting there. Like, is that really, again, we're not trying to say it's all your fault, but is that really where you want to draw his attention to? The outward? You want to cause him to lust? Or as your brother in Christ, would you want to protect him, protect his purity? You see, that's the idea we should have. But in culture, we just go right along with it. This is how we dress. This is how we talk. This is how we do these things. And we have to start questioning. And Jesus said right here, listen, you're committing adultery just by thinking about it, just by looking at a woman with lust. But what about a woman who says, ooh, I really want a guy to look at me and lust for me that way? Aren't they not just as guilty? Say probably so. But listen, we talk about sexual sin. We're talking about it here. It's, there is deliverance from it. Look what he says in verses 29 to 30. And we'll end with this. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it's more profitable for you than one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. You say, oh, great. Thanks, Kevin. That's the deliverance, is it? Got to pluck out my eye and got to cut off my hand. (laughs) Listen, at first glance, this may seem inconsistent with Jesus' teaching so far, right? Because he's been talking about the internal and then he says to take external action. Does seem odd, right? And, you know, to be fair, in history, some men have gone way too far after reading a passage like this. Um, 
in terms of uh, uh, taking action on their physical bodies. But Jesus here is making a hyperbolic statement. It's hyperbole, okay? His point is this, that sin, you got to take it seriously, and it must be dealt with radically. If you really thought about the seriousness of sin, right, that God has prepared a place called hell in which he's going to punish people who have, who have just been in rebellion to him. And we don't care about sin. We take it so lightly. We're, we're not really understanding God. He says, listen, you've got to deal with it radically. Outward acts cannot change a corrupt heart. Absolutely not. That's not what he's saying here. But the outward act of forsaking whatever is harmful reflects something of you. It reflects, goes back to, to the first chap, part of the chapter, it reflects a hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's what it reflects. He says, I, he said, it would be better if, if your eye was always the thing causing you to sin. He said, I would, just, I would just pluck it out. It's better. It's better. If we don't consistently control what's around us, where we go, what we do, what we watch, what we, what we read, who we keep company with, the conversations that we have, all of those things, then those things will control us. And he's saying, you've got to take control of the situations. J.C. Ryle wrote this about um, having a personal zeal for holiness, right? Just wanting to be like Christ. I just want to be like Christ and having excitement and a zeal for that. And he looks at this passage. This is what he says. Such zeal will make a man feel incessantly that sin is the mightiest of all evils and conformity to Christ the greatest of all blessings. It will make him feel that there's nothing which ought not to be done in order to keep up a close walk with God. It will make him willing to cut off the right hand or pluck out the right eye or make any sacrifice if only he can attain a closer communion with Jesus. Do you see that? That's the idea. I would be willing to do whatever it took. If it made me closer with him, I would do it. Now, he's not saying do that, right? But he wants that in your heart. So it is a heart issue that he's talking about here. And then that little quote, he ends with two passages from Paul, one of which I opened with, but I'm going to show you two. 1 Corinthians 9, 27 but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself shall become disqualified. Even Paul, even the great apostle Paul, had to realize that he had to discipline his body. It does take discipline. I don't allow my members to just run amok. In fact, it's Paul writing in Romans says that don't, no, no longer offer your members as instruments for wickedness or unrighteousness, but now you can, those can be used for righteousness. Why wouldn't you want to do that? God, these things used to commit heinous crimes against you. Would you use them now for you? That's the heart. Does that make sense? And then he writes in Philippians 3, 13 to 14. Again, this is what I opened with this morning. Brethren, I do not count myself to apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You, listen, you know, you haven't made it. I haven't made it. None of us have made it. We're not here. We're not perfect. He says, but the idea is that I, I want to reach for those things. I'm striving for those things. Why? It's an upward call. We've all received an upward call. The goal is Jesus. We want to reach that. That's where I want to, to go. And so when he goes back to, to murder, right? Well, I'm a good person. I haven't killed anyone yet. But do you have hatred in your heart against anyone? It separates you from God. Get rid of it. Right? Well, I haven't committed a, adultery uh, on my wife. Yeah, but have you lusted for other women in your heart? Then you have. 
He says, you need to get that right with God. It's your heart that he wants. It's always been about the heart. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. I know this is a hard section of scripture. Undoubtedly, it was hard for the hearers of Jesus' day, no doubt. But also timely, Lord, because we, many today, have so cheapened your word and so lessened the call for holiness that it's just about experiencing you um, when, Lord, really we don't have a real experience with you if we have sin in our heart. And so, Lord, the reminder is, no, my heart must be constantly purged before you, Lord. I just pray for your people, Lord, that we, they would leave today not, not feeling beat up, not feeling discouraged, but knowing the great news that they have just heard, that they can have a clean heart. Your word says that uh, we confess our sins to you, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, Lord. Your mercies are new every morning. How great is that? To know that not once are we forgiven, once for all, but always. Past, present, and future sins cleansed. But at the same time, Lord, while I do sin and I do stumble, I want to, uh, I want to see greater victory in my life. We all should, because the goal is Christ. We want to be like him. And I want my whole heart to be his. And Lord, I know sometimes I don't give my whole heart to him. Lord, I pray that your people would just be willing to give their hearts to you. Say, Lord, just work in my heart. My heart's yours. Take it. Take it. Use me for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.